Welcome to Middle School Walk and Talk, a podcast series offering heart, hope, and health to members of our middle school communities. Take a walk with co-hosts Phyllis Fagel and Joe Mazza as they discuss self-care, student well-being, school culture, and more. Middle School Walk and Talk is a production of the Association for Middle Level Education and is designed to support the concepts outlined in our foundational text, The Successful Middle School, This We Believe. Learn more at amle.org. Today's episode, The Extended Mind, with special guest, Annie Murphy-Paul. Hey, Phyllis, how's it going? It's going well. How about on your end? Hey, it's still summer. It's still summer for many of our colleagues across the country. They're actually starting school next week or even this week. Uh, But for us, it's still summer for a couple more weeks. How about you? Same. We go back right after Labor Day. Teachers go back a little bit earlier. I'm already getting a little bit of anticipatory anxiety. It probably, it will help me relate to the students, I think, though, especially this year. Yeah, no, I've been, uh, I've, I've gotten back into the reading of, you know, adolescence and, and middle school and I've uh, been reading some articles and, um, you know, I think our, our special guest today is going to help us continue to, to, to head that direction and hopefully inspire some of the listeners to start thinking um, about how we're going to leverage those brains um, of our learners and ourselves uh, this year. So uh, I believe we have uh, Annie with us today, Annie Murphy-Paul, is that right? That is right. That is right. Hi, guys. Hi. Annie is the author of The Extended Mind. Uh, It exhorts us to use our entire bodies, our surroundings, and our relationships to think outside the brain. And we're so thrilled to have you with us today. I'm really glad to be here. I have a middle schooler myself, so these are topics that are on my mind, too. Uh, Annie, tell us a little bit about yourself and your book. Yeah, so I'm a science writer who covers research on learning and cognition. This is my third book. And this one really emerged out of my role as a parent. I, I have two sons, one's in high school, one's in middle school. And I, as they entered school years ago, I became so interested in how they were learning, how they were being taught by their teachers. And at the same time, I realized that there was this really exploding field of research around the science of how we learn. And so that started me uh, getting focused on that area of specialization as a journalist. And as I wrote, you know, researched, reported, wrote articles about the science of learning, I kept coming across these um, really interesting findings that seemed related to each other, but I couldn't quite at first figure out how. Um, They were findings in areas like embodied cognition, the idea that we think with our bodies and situated cognition, the idea that we think differently depending on where we are. And finally, socially distributed cognition, the idea that we don't just think with our individual minds, we think with the minds of other people. And then um, you can see how far afield I was ranging in my reading. I I came across an article in a philosophy journal. Uh, the The title of the article was The Extended Mind. And the idea there is that we don't just think with our brains, that think our thinking processes pull in these outside the brain resources, like the movements and gestures of the body, like the spaces in which we learn and work and how they're arranged, and also our interactions and our relationships with other people. And so when I came across this idea of the extended mind, the idea that the the mind extends beyond the brain. That was a lightning, uh, a light bulb moment for me, a lightning strike also. (laughs) And that kind of pulled it all together for me. And that ended up becoming the central idea around which I built this book. 
Annie, one of the things that you mentioned when we talked last week, and I share some of your ideas in an article I'm writing for the Washington Post right now, is why this concept is helpful to kids' academic self-concept and mm -hmm. their ability to sit with frustration, which I think is going to be really important when kids mm. come back in fall, especially if they struggled on the virtual platform or right. maybe struggled for the first time academically last year. And right. we know that middle schoolers are insecure to begin with. They have all of the social adjustments they're going to be making when they come back. One of the things that really resonated for me was this idea that if kids understand that it's not about just sitting there and working mm -hmm. hard, they are better equipped to persevere. Could you share a little bit more about what you had said to me on that topic? Sure, sure. Yeah. So when we think of the brain as the only place where thinking happens, that really limits our options. You know, we can sit there, we can keep working our, our poor brains harder and harder often frustration mounts and the kid ends up feeling like I can't, I can't do this. My brain's not up to this job. And that's a very helpless kind of place to be in. Whereas if we think about uh, the mind as, as incorporating all these other resources, then we have a whole menu of options. Students have a whole menu of options to apply when they do get to that stuck place. They can stand up and, and stretch or walk around. They can try acting out what they uh, are trying to understand with their bodies or, or use gestures to try to um, achieve a more complete understanding. Or they can get a change of scene, maybe work in another room or go outside and they can draw in other people, their parents or their friends, or they can even interact in a sense with um, other people online. They can, they, one of my favorite um, ideas emerging from the research is that they, it, it, it's so helpful to teach another person uh, uh, the material that you're trying to learn. So they could record an instructional video for a friend or, or an imagined audience. So they have all these options once they start thinking in terms of bodies places and people as resources and not just, it, it's not all on their own brains to get it done. I love that idea of leveraging their social needs, especially in middle school mm. and really honing in on their desire to be accepted by their peers and to feel a sense of belonging. And that was one of the other things we discussed that resonated for me, this idea that we can actually tailor their spaces to help them feel that sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that as well and what that might look like both at school and maybe at home with regards to homework spaces? Yeah, yeah, this is, I think, especially applicable to middle schoolers because as we know, this is when their social impulses really come out in force. And unfortunately, in, in schools, we often think that they that students should put aside their social needs and their social impulses in order to get academic work done when, when I think it's much more productive to think in terms of how do we, as you use the words leverage, leverage their social um, interests and abilities in the service of learning. And so one of those really important social um, conditions is a sense that, that, we, that we belong, that we belong to a group, that we're doing something together with other people. So when we're talking about spaces like a, a kid's um, um, study space or their desk at school, it can be really helpful to have reminders and cues of, first of all, who that kid is, who they like to think of themselves as cues of identity, and then also cues 
of belonging cues that remind them that they are part of a, a valued group, that they're not alone, that they're, you know, part of um, a collective. And so to the extent that parents and teachers can allow students or encourage students to, to, to decorate and adorn their spaces with these cues of identity and cues of belonging, that's going to support their ability to think well in that space. So you're talking about uh, some of these areas that students have at school mm -hmm. um, in terms of decorate them, perhaps, um, you know, we've recently approached the topic of lockers here at our middle school um, as we uh, reconsider whether they um, are safe um, and they are effective, you know, because we're in the business of building executive functions um, here at the middle school. And, you know, as a new fifth grader or sixth grader that hasn't been to the building before and, you know, welcome, here's canvas, here's this, here's new teachers, here's a locker, you have all these kinds of things. And, you know, last year, we really didn't have them because of the social distancing part. Um, and just kids being in certain rooms and not needing to go and change at the locker and whatnot. Um, this year, we're, we're still waiting on some guidance on that we haven't made our decisions yet. Um, so that's, it's kind of twofold, you know, one, how does the locker play into some of the concepts you were just talking about, you know, carving out your own area, whatnot, but two, you know, how does it, you know, help or hinder the whole executive functioning piece uh, for students that don't quite have it together yet? <laughs> right, which is the case for a lot of middle schoolers, and that's perfectly normal and developmentally appropriate to be figuring this stuff out, still figuring this stuff out, but I think that's a really great example, Joe, of how much the pandemic has disrupted the way things are usually done. You know, we think of middle school, we think of lockers, like those two things go together, but the, the pandemic threw a wrench in so many of the ways that we normally do things. And I think as we return to school, following this, this disruption, we really have an opportunity to rethink, you know, well, was that old way of doing things the best way? Is there a better way to approach this? I mean, I, I do think going by the research that students having their own space in, in a locker and being able to uh, appoint that space the way they want that that the research would support that as being a good a good thing for them it feels like a home base or a, a, a little space that's that's all their own but I wonder and I think I know you're thinking in this direction too could their management of their locker and the, their possessions inside could could they get some structure and guidance in how to stay organized how to um, use that space in the most productive way and not sort of, you know, just um, throw kids into a situation where they've got this space, but they don't know how to manage it. And it ends up being chaotic or messy or, or, you know, <laughs> full of, of yesterday's lunch or whatever. And so could it become a, a site, you know, where a, a site, a place and an occasion for building those executive functions, maybe with some structure and guidance from teachers. Annie, as you were talking, I was also thinking about the social messiness mm. and the social messiness that tends to emerge around lockers. As a school counselor, for me, I sometimes have work generated because someone leaves a mean note in someone's mm. locker mm. or plants a love letter that's, you know, phony in someone's locker, mm -hmm. all kinds of things can happen around the locker. There's also a lot of positive things that happen. Kids make friends, they practice social skills, they make small talk, they have an opportunity to just unwind a little bit and connect with one another, which as you mentioned, is so important to learning, mm -hmm. particularly in middle school. But 
I also was thinking about the functional aspect of the locker. I also have mm. a eighth grader and all last year he plays baseball and he would drag his really heavy equipment mm. back and forth every single day, all of the textbooks back and forth every mm. single day, mm. really heavy. And yeah. I, I would hesitate to get rid of a locker, not just for the research, but also because of its utility to help offload some of the physical load from right, right, right. The cognitive offloading. And that's something that you've talked about a lot as well. And Joe and I were talking about organizers and planners the other day and which ones we like and how we can use the most effectively. And I had talked about that with you as well. And I would love to hear your thoughts on what we can do to help kids take some of the burden out of their brain, out mm -hmm. of their bodies and put it somewhere else, whether it's a locker or a planner or any other receptacle for that information. Yeah. Yeah. I really like the, the parallel between offloading the stuff off of kids' backs and also the stuff out of their minds, because it really is a very helpful step to get the contents of our minds out of our minds and onto physical space in some way, whether that's an organizer or um, a sketchbook or a bunch of post-it notes. That's what I use as, as a writer. But um, we tend to, adults too, um, we tend to do too much in our heads. We expect ourselves to do too much in our heads when it would really benefit our thinking to get all those ideas out of our heads. And um, that's a skill that we can teach kids how to do. You know, it always strikes me that we think of it as being okay and acceptable for very young kids to um, use use manipulatives, you know, in kindergarten, for example, like to, to learn math, but then we expect them to sort of put those external objects and externalized ideas, put them aside as they get older and increasingly do things in their heads when really that cognitive offloading benefits us all throughout life. And the more complex and demanding our mental work gets, the more benefit we get from cognitive offloading. So I think it's, it, it's, it can be a relatively simple step of saying to kids like, well, I know you're struggling to learn this or to grasp this. Let's, let's get all that out of your head, put it down on paper, you know, maybe just write out everything you know about the subject, and then you can get a better sense of, of where the gaps are and what you still need to learn. You know, I just that idea of, you don't have to do it all in your head. In fact, your brain gets really full of stuff and it gets, it gets harder for it to do that higher level thinking that we want to do. So let's get it out on paper and then we can, then we can work with it better. I like that you mentioned post-its, you know, as I look at <laughs> 15,000 of them all around me right now, like the summer to do's, uh -huh. um, you know, supply lists have already gone out and this and that. And I know there, are, you know, especially for some ELA classes, there's post-it notes on, on many of those, but, you know, to kind of capitalize on what you just said, you know, what are some of the tools and that we could utilize, you know, to contribute to this cognitive offloading, you know, stickies being one example, what are some other mm -hmm. things that, you know, we can offer to parents and to teachers mm -hmm. to, to support this? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, one of my favorite strands of research in this realm is, about the benefits of sketching for uh, for for learning, and you know, immediately whenever I mention this to people, people will respond, "Well, I can't draw," you know, because there's this idea that only some people are good artists. But but the idea here is that anyone um, by drawing um, and and putting in in representative form, pic, pic, pictorial form, uh, an idea that they're trying to 
understand um, gets another dimension of understanding. Um, and again, it, it can show us what we know and what we don't know. Um, so I think drawing and having a teacher draw a concept or um, you know draw a diagram can be a good way of modeling that. And then I think it's also interesting to think about gestures. Um, you know, some cognitive scientists refer to gestures as sort of drawing pictures in the air. We're kind of um, capturing in spatial terms what can be very hard to express in verbal terms. And so we can encourage kids to make gestures. You know, you can even say something very simple like. Well, try, try moving your hands when you say that, you know, or setting up occasions on which kids are more likely to gesture, like asking them to offer an impromptu explanation of something that they're, they're working on and also giving them something to gesture at kids and adults tend to gesture more when they have a, a diagram or a model or some physical object to gesture at. And the more gestures we evoke from kids, the more we gestures we can kind of pull out of them, the better their memory and their understanding and their attention to the material that they're trying to learn. Yeah. And I think one area that we haven't really talked about in depth that I would love to close with, because I think it will be particularly important when we go back to school, is that social piece. I've been talking to uh, my own daughter, who's a camp counselor, and to other students who've been attending overnight camps, and it sounds like the emotions are really messy. Uh, my, my own daughter has been a camp counselor for 30 12-year-olds, and so she has really been living up close and personal with that middle school brain, and particularly the middle school brain on the heels of so much isolation, so much disruption, so much insecurity, lost opportunities to practice these social skills. And so as we're wrapping up, I would love to hear your ideas about what teachers can do and administrators, counselors, anyone in the school setting can do to help kids relax a little bit, feel a bit more secure, feel like they're in that community of supportive learners, work together and create a positive culture. Yeah, well, I think one thing we can do is acknowledge that this is still a really weird time. You know, I think a lot of us are really eager to get back to normal and that's totally understandable, but kids are gonna be feeling kind of unsettled and, um, unsure of, of, of how to act and how to be with people again in these, in these um, collective settings. And I think it can help for adults to acknowledge that they're feeling a little unsettled too. And that um, the, the pandemic has been a really big deal for, for all of us. And we're all getting used to the ever, you know, not only new realities, but an ever-changing reality. And of course, that is um, that is stressful and anxiety producing too, when we don't really know what tomorrow will bring. But the idea that we're in it together, that we can share and be open about those feelings, um, I think will go a long way towards soothing some of that anxiety, which, which can get in the way of learning. You know, you want kids to be in a place where they feel taken care of, where they feel connected with other people. And that's when learning can really take place. I think that normalizing piece is such great advice. And I know it's soothing to me too. And I'm sure to everyone who's listening and anticipating a rocky start to the school year, or at least an uncertain start to the school year, and not what it will be hopefully better than maybe some of us anticipate. But I know that we really appreciate your coming on to talk to Joe and to me and to share all of your wisdom about The Extended Mind. I really recommend for everybody to read her book, The Extended Mind. And it's the power of thinking outside the brain. There are so many 
tips and pieces of wisdom, neuroscience that you can use every day as a teacher or as an educator of any kind. Thank you so much, Phyllis. And thank you, Joe. This has been a pleasure.